You're listening to audio from Stapleton Baptist Church. If you would like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit stapletonbaptistchurch.org. We pray this message blesses you. I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 11 this morning. John chapter 11. And we're going to read an account this morning of a family in their darkest time. This is an account of a family found, that has found themselves at their lowest point. They're filled with grief and sadness and sorrow and regret. They even wrestle with the question of what if? What if Jesus had have been there? How could things be different? And it's a story that most of us can relate to in one way or another. I know we have brothers and sisters in Christ who are a part of this church who right now are in their low point. They're weighed down by grief, wondering if life will ever get back to normal, if life will ever be the same. They're wrestling with an unexpected diagnosis, wondering what will the future hold. The truth is we all feel this at some point or another. Either you've been through a valley or you're currently in a valley or you will eventually go through another valley. It's inevitable. The brokenness of our world guarantees that we all experience it in one way or another. And plus, at the end, death comes for us all. Despite the technological advancements of our society, no one can stop death. We can send humans through space on rockets to the moon, and yet we can't figure out how to stop death. We can Come up with cures for incredibly dangerous diseases, just like we eventually will find a cure for the coronavirus. But those vaccines can only prolong life. They can't cure death. And we all face it in our own way in the end. And the natural questions all come up. Why is this happening to me? Why do bad things happen to good people? What is God doing in this? And how will I ever move forward? This morning, I want us to feel the weight of those questions and those feelings as we study John chapter 11, because there's a hope found in this chapter that outshines the despair. And there's a truth that's found in today's passage that has the power to transform the way we look at our trials and how we navigate life through them. So in fact, we'll actually highlight four truths about God in our trials. So we'll find four truths about God In our trial. So let's begin reading in John chapter 11, verse 1. It says this Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So let's get our bearings first on the setting here. At the end of chapter 10, it tells us that Jesus, he he makes a little bit of a strategic retreat from Jerusalem back across the Jordan River to the area where he really had begun his ministry and John the Baptist had begun his ministry. Scholars say he was probably in the area called Batania, And the next time he returns to Jerusalem will be his last, but it's not yet his time. And now it's while he is in Batania that he receives a message from two sisters, Mary and Martha, that their brother Lazarus is gravely ill. He's sick. And this is the first mention of this family in John's gospel. 
But we can infer from this that they're dear friends of Jesus because they refer to Lazarus as he whom you love. And so we'll see from this story that Jesus seems to have a particular affection for this family of three siblings. And they don't directly ask Jesus to come, but it's assumed in their message that they're hoping or requesting that Jesus will come to them in Bethany, which is about two days' journey from where Jesus was. That's important to know for how we understand this story. And we can assume this is a serious illness, otherwise they wouldn't have sent to Jesus to to come. So it's obvious this is a sickness that will lead to death if nothing changes. But here's how Jesus responds. This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Truth number one, God is in control. God is in control. Now, I know that may sound cliche. It's kind of one the go-to phrase when comforting someone, reminding them God is in control, but it's cliche because it's absolutely true. And it's actually the bedrock foundation of our faith in a broken world, knowing that no matter what things look like on the outside, that God is still in control. And so Jesus can hear this news of Lazarus being gravely ill and confidently declare this illness doesn't lead to death. It's actually a part of God's plan to glorify himself. This reminds me of chapter 9 when the disciples see the blind beggar and they assume that he's blind because of some, some sin that someone's committed. But it was actually, as Jesus told them, the, the blindness was not a result of sin, but it was because God was going to be glorified in that blindness. And God used that man's infirmity for a greater purpose. And God gave his pain a purpose and glorified himself through something that only seemed like a problem to everyone else. And that's because God is in control, even in what seems like chaos in the world. I think of the account in Mark 4, when the disciples and Jesus are in the boat on the sea, and, and a storm comes up, and, and it's a bad storm. They think they are going to sink. They are going to die. And where is Jesus? He's asleep in the stern of the boat. And why is he asleep? Is it because he doesn't care? No, it's because he's in control. He has no fear because he's in control. And when they wake him up, he simply commands the winds and the waves to stop. Because God is in control, Jesus can hear about this illness and say, this is for God's glory. And the same is true in your life and in my life when we face trials of any kind. In your grief, God is in control. In your sickness, God is in control. In your loneliness and isolation, God is in control. And in your fear of the future, God is in control. And he can give your pain a purpose because he is in control. Now let's see what Jesus does in verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. 
So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Truth number two, God is always at work. God is always at work. John makes a point to emphasize that that Jesus loved this family. Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus dearly. So then why would he delay two days in going to them? Now, understand that Jesus isn't the reason Lazarus dies. This passage is sometimes preached that way, but here's why that can't be true. It was a two days journey from where Jesus was to Bethany. And when he finally gets there, it says that Lazarus had been dead for four days. So a two days journey plus Jesus waits two days. That's four, four days by my math. And so if he's already been in the tomb four days, and that means that Lazarus was probably dead even by the time the message got to Jesus in the first place. So it's not that Jesus could have got there and saved him and just didn't, but we still have the question, why did Jesus wait two days? And the ESV translation gets verse 6 right by using the word so or therefore, meaning because Jesus loved them, he waited two more days, which doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense in the moment. But it points to the fact that Jesus was at work all along, even when it didn't seem like it. Even in those two days span, he was at work. And the truth is that God is always at work. He's always working and he's always at work because he's in control. Jesus is actually working two jobs at the same time right here. Not only is he at work in Lazarus's situation, but there's also still a greater appointment that Jesus has at the cross, and it's drawing near by the second. And that's why the disciples react the way they do when he says, let's go back down to Judea, because what's in Judea? Jerusalem. It is, it is the territory of the Jews. And the disciples are quick to point out, isn't that where we just left because they were ready to kill you on the spot? But Jesus says he has work to do. Are there not 12 hours in a day? Obviously, this was long before digital clocks, but they generally understood there's about 12 hours worth of daylight during the day, and that's when you worked, because once the sun was down, nighttime was really nighttime there. And so there's no more work to be done. And Jesus is telling them it's still daylight. There's still job, a job to be finished, and there's still work to be accomplished, and it will require him to go back into enemy territory. And understand what Jesus is risking by going to Mary and Martha. It tells us that Bethany, where they were, was only two miles from Jerusalem. But look at verse 14. He tells them plainly that Lazarus has died. So Jesus somehow miraculously has the knowledge that, that Lazarus has died. But he tells them it's for, the, for their sake he's glad that he wasn't there so that the disciples would believe. And we'll have to continue reading to fully understand this, but Jesus is setting them up for kind of a finale that there is a greater purpose and glory in Lazarus's death than any of them could have imagined because God is always at work. But don't forget that for Mary and Martha, this is still two extra days of wondering, where is Jesus? Why hasn't he come yet? And often in our own trials, that's, that's the same for us too. Where is Jesus? Where is God in my sickness, in my cancer? Where is God in my pain I've walked with or wrestled with for years and years. Where is God in 
my depression? Does he care? Where is God in my longing for a spouse or for children? Where, where is he in my loneliness? And the answer is that he's right there at work in the very midst of it the whole time, even when we can't see it. And that's the truth at the heart of Jeremiah 29, 11. I can hardly think of a verse that, that is more drawn and painted and decorated and tattooed than, than Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And it's a great verse, but few people know the context that it's actually in. Jeremiah is writing those words to people in exile. Because of their continual disobedience and wickedness, God, God allowed the Israelite people to be overrun by the Babylonians, and they were ripped out of their home and, and marched off to a foreign city. They destroyed Jerusalem and the temple of God. And on top of that, God told them they would be in captivity for 70 years. So that's who Jeremiah is writing those words to in their darkest moment when it sure doesn't seem like God is in control. Jeremiah is writing them, God has a plan. I have a plan for, for you. And so a people at the beginning of their exile in a foreign land, knowing a whole generation of them would die without ever seeing their home again. Yet God says, I know the plans I have for you and their plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And God did. He eventually did restore them. And ultimately, God's faithfulness to them comes from sending the Messiah through, through the line of David and fulfilling his promises to Abraham long ago. And, but in that moment, it sure didn't look like God was at work. It looked like God was completely absent, but he was at work. And we can't always see it. And oftentimes, the way God works isn't in the way that we're expecting him to work, but we can always trust that he is at work and it's for our good. We know that to be true from Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. But understand there, there is no guarantee that that will work together for our good in this lifetime. Too often we have such a short-sighted view of God's plan in his work in the world, we look at this short little blip on the radar screen called our life while God sees everything from all of eternity in his perspective. And the truth is, it will all work together for our good, but that will only be fully realized in glory. Romans 8.28 is true because of what Romans 8.29 and 30 say. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. All things work together for our good because we have been called and justified and will one day be glorified with him in heaven. That's our ultimate hope. And so even right now in the midst of our pain and suffering and trials, we have confident assurance in the promise that God is in control and is at work. And one day all things will be made right and be restored. And so we can trust in him, even if it's just the pessimistic trust of Thomas that we see here in verse 16. Let us go that we may die with him. A little bit of a downer here. Thomas often gets kind of a bad rep too often, but even though it's kind of pessimistic, don't overlook the courage that he ha he's actually showing. He's not saying, I'm not going with Jesus down to Judea. He's actually saying, 
we're going to die, but we're going with him. We're, we're in it together. And say, so let's see what happens now when Jesus does get to Bethany. Him and his disciples travel down there in verse 17. It says this, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she arose and went quickly to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews had who had come with her were also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? So it tells us once again, Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days at this point, which means there's no way Jesus could have gotten there in the first place to, to heal him. And that's important for understanding how Mary, what Mary means when she says, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. So this isn't accusatory. She's not saying this in an accusatory way. Instead, in her grief, she's still showing a confident trust in Jesus. So much so that in verse 22, she affirms her confidence that Jesus is still in control, even in the middle of her pain. Saying, even now, I know that whatever you ask from the Father, he will give you. And Jesus tells her, her brother will rise again, but she thinks he's referring to the last day, when, when God makes everything right. But little does she know, Jesus is meaning a little bit sooner than that. And he declares, I am the resurrection and the life. And for months now, Jesus has been setting up his disciples and his followers for this declaration He's been talking about being the bread of life and living water and the light of the world. But there is more. He doesn't just offer life. He is life itself. Life is found in him. And more than that, there's no resurrection apart from Jesus. He is the resurrection and the life is found in him. And this is how great and magnificent Jesus Christ is. That, and that makes this third truth so much more powerful. Truth number three. God cares. God cares. We've seen this in the teaching of the Good Shepherd over the last few weeks, but now we see his care in a tangible way in the person of Jesus. Verse 33 says that when Jesus saw Mary and the others weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled. Several commentaries point out that in the original Greek, this deeply moved 
is better translated outraged, that, that Jesus is outraged when he sees their weeping. And so what would Jesus be outraged about in this scene? He sees the weeping and the grief of, of a friend, a dear friend who's lost a brother, and he's outraged. And he's outraged at the effects of sin. Things are not as they should be. Sin entered the perfect creation and brought death with it. And make no mistake, death is an intruder in God's creation. And Jesus sees the sin, the effects of sin and death and is outraged. But the good news is that he is the resurrection and the life. He is the one who will defeat death, hell, and the grave. But see how he cares. And in verse 35, it simply says, Jesus wept. They bring him to the tomb of his friend Lazarus and Jesus weeps. Now, don't miss this. Jesus is the Son of God. He is one with the Father. He is the Word who is with God and is God. And all things were made for him and through him. And yet he weeps at the death of a friend. We have a God who cares deeply for his creation, especially his children. His love is extravagant. His mercy as deep as the oceans. And his grace is never ending. He cares for his sheep. He loves his sheep. And because we know he's always, control, always in control and always at work, we can rest assured that he cares for us in our trials. These truths work together. His grace is sufficient. His power is perfected in our weakness. And it's his care for us that ultimately drives him to the cross. For God so loved the world. And here he's about to give a glimpse of this life-giving, death-defeating power. And so let's finish reading in verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out, cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. Truth number four, God is our hope. God is our hope, even when things seem hopeless. There was no hope for Lazarus. Martha still wasn't picking up on what Jesus intended to do. When Jesus wants the stone removed, she, she kind of protests saying, Jesus, you know he's been in there four days. There will be an odor by now. And it doesn't take a doctor or a scientist to imagine what a dead body does after four days in a cave. But there also must, uh, may have been another significance to the fact that it's been four days. There's apparently a belief among some Jews during this time that when someone died, their soul would kind of hover over the body or remain around the body for three days. And there was a slight chance of resuscitation or, or being brought back. But they believed that after three days, when decay set in, there was absolutely no chance of, of being revived. So it could have been that Jesus, wanting to make it clear that he is doing something that no one else could possibly do, 
waited those extra days so that it would now be on the fourth day. And he's giving life to a dead man. And we see once again the powerful life-giving voice of God. This same voice that spoke all creation into existence. The same voice that commands the winds and the waves to stop. The same voice that tells the paralytic to get up and walk. Now calls out to the dead man, get up. And Lazarus gets up. He has no choice but to get up. And he gets up just as easily as we would wake somebody up from a nap. And that's because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And his disciples get a front row seat to the glory of God in this miracle. He is the resurrection and the life. Jesus is the only resurrection and the life. And apart from him, there is only death. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead to give a glimpse of his life-giving power that he had and to show a preview of how one day he will raise all of his followers to new life in him. And notice how he does it. He calls. He commanded Lazarus to come out. And all throughout the New Testament, we see the apostles using the word call to refer to salvation. You were called by God. You were called out of darkness and out of sin. Just like Lazarus, we are dead in our sins. And according to the Bible, every single person has fallen short of the glory of God. We've all sinned and broken God's righteous law, and for that, we deserve punishment. And as John made clear in his gospel, in our sins, we are blind and dead. But then the light of the world pierces the darkness of our world. The voice of Jesus breaks through our death and calls us to new life. And today, he's still calling people out of death into life. Then it's that life that never ends. Sure, it, the life will end in this temporary world that we live in. But when we're called by God, we're guaranteed to be raised again to eternal life with God, our Father in heaven. And the only way is through Jesus Christ, the resurrection and the life. But this truth isn't just for those who need salvation. This is a truth for every single Christian in here this morning who is in a trial or eventually will go through a trial. And that's because God is in control. God is at work. God cares and God is our hope. And all those truths transcend the trials we go through. It doesn't make the trials go away. It doesn't make the trials any less painful or difficult, but it gives us, it gives us an eternal perspective. And I want to end by reading a line from the Heidelberg Catechism, which was a document used for teaching Christian doctrine in the 1500s. And the very first question of this catechism is, what is our only hope in life and death? What is our only hope in life and death? And here's the answer, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. He is our only hope in this life and in eternity. That is Jesus Christ, the resurrection and the life. Would you pray with me?